0: Why should investors consider workforce housing as a stable opportunity zone investment strategy? Find out next. How can workforce housing be developed in Opportunity Zones? Here to discuss this topic with me today is Riaz Taplin. Riaz is founder and CEO of Riaz Capital, and he joins me today from Oakland, California. Riaz, thanks for coming on the show. Welcome.
1: Jimmy, thanks for
0: having me on. Absolutely. So our show today is going to be focused on workforce housing and the backdrop for the case for workforce housing in many ways is the housing crisis that is hitting hard in our nation's urban markets and in particular in the Bay Area where you are located. I uh, wanted to get your thoughts on, on the housing crisis. Maybe you can characterize it for our audience and, and who is the housing crisis hitting primarily?
1: So I think we should divide this into the why does it exist and who is it hitting hardest, right? So I think one thing to think about is the origin of the American city and who cities were designed to house. So cities were designed to house families. So if you look at you know marriage age, you know at the beginning of the 20th century, people broadly speaking got married in their late teenage years and early 20s, right? And if you fast forward to, for example, and you hit a time point in 1955, 80% of American households were multi-generational households. And what that means is is that 80% of the living units were either parents and children or parents and older adults. If you fast forward to 2015, 20% of American households are now single generation households. In other words, the demographics of America had flip-flopped on itself, whereby the vast majority of households were now either a single individual or a couple. So why did this happen? So if you look at every social movement of the 20th century and you collapse it into one number, the delay in fertility rates, women entering the workforce, so on and so forth, it all resulted in people having children later, which means that the number of years in which there are children at home is restricted to a smaller percentage of one's life, which means that somebody is living on their own for a longer period of time. And by and large, most people chose to take that extension in life expectancy, that delay in fertility rate, by living single between the time they're in their late, early 20s and early 30s. That's point number one. Point number two is America did not realize how quickly it had become an urban place. And the planning restrictions that are more, that are stronger in urban areas restricted the growth of entry level housing. So if you think about in business, we have this line, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. In housing, broadly speaking, we let perfect be the enemy of reasonable. So in other words, cities misunderstood who their customer was, number one. Number two, they made it difficult to build housing by introducing different degrees of planning restrictions, which is the worst here in California. So for example, every unit must have a parking spot. Every unit must have open space. Every unit must be a certain size. All of these are good ideas, but they're fundamentally a tax on housing. That's number two. And number three was all of these things, basically, in order to fix the problem, the solution that many cities introduced made the problem worse, right? Which was just making the process more cumbersome. So in places like the Bay Area, which is probably the peak of this problem, where we have an enormous number of young individuals moving to the Bay Area to be part of the tech economy, and the most restrictive planning environment anywhere almost in the world, this has become the most acute. So if you look at what was the result of undersupplying, not designing for the customer, et cetera, it's that as of 2019, San Francisco Planning and Urban Research believed that the Bay Area had underbuilt moderate income housing by 408,000 units, okay? And basically over a 20 year period, we should have built give or take 430,000 units of housing, and we only built 22,000. So we're basically producing, for every 20 units we should have produced, we produced one unit, right? And that's the basic underlying idea of why investing in workforce housing in the Bay Area is good economics, right? And the reason why we focused on not looking at workforce as the entire umbrella is who is it this problem affecting it's people who have the benefit of one income and are broadly speaking working in the economy in a professional capacity outside of the tech and financial sectors and this group of people since they're broadly speaking single have minimal spatial needs and have a minimal need for space because they're very externally oriented towards being out with their friends, out working, out exercising, out having fun. So this idea of that having a small house and a big life, people at that stage of life don't want to spend a big portion of their income on housing. They want to spend a big portion of their income on experiences. So we as RIAs Capital chose to design a housing solution that facilitated people who earn 80 to 100% of AMI Having something that they could be proud of, something that was conveniently located to work, and something that was private—in other words, they're not sharing with somebody else—while not consuming a disproportionate share of their income.
0: That all makes sense to me, and that's a great uh, little history of the last 70 years of uh, of society that you gave us, or at least one cross section of society. Uh, it particularly, you know, the uh, how housing has changed or demand for housing has changed over that time period, and how our policies have not kept up and it's led us to where we are today. And I think you're absolutely right that, uh, you know, this is really about supply and demand and the supply is extremely low and the demand is very high for this type of product. So excited to dive in with you more about that shortly here, Riaz, but first I want to back up for a minute and get to know you a little bit more, Riaz. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Maybe tell us how you got to where you are today over the last, uh, over the last couple of decades or so. You've been doing this for a long time, but tell us a little bit more about yourself, please.
1: Yeah. So I'm a San Francisco native. So I grew up here in the Bay Area, uh, kind of like a quintessential Bay Area family. My mother came from more of the nonprofit background. My father was a real estate attorney. When I graduated from college, I had this like dream of building workforce housing. And I called up this architect and I was like, Hey, you know, like my parents gave me some money. I want to like, Built housing for, the, you know, for everybody in Oakland, right? The guy never called me back. So I ended up spending the next you know five years doing luxury housing projects in San Francisco. And so the, the pitch, so there were modern houses and the idea is you could just move in with your clothes, right, so soup to nuts. And then I did that as a service company after the crisis. But the whole time, you know my dad had acquired a small portfolio in Oakland, which was about 100 units. So I was w- running this kind of like cross section between what I was doing on the luxury side of the business and what I was doing on the entry level side of the business. And basically 2008 happened, and I converted what I was doing on the luxury side of the business into a service business and I kept building up our kind of workforce housing portfolio and in 2015 I stopped doing anything on the luxury side and kind of committed, you know, full time to to what we do now, which is basically developing different types of housing for people who earn between 60 dollars and $80,000. And over the course of the decade, in this kind of search for the solution for this you know, $65,000 customer, you know, we've done co-living, I've advised co-living companies, uh, we've done student housing, we've done micro-units, we've done micro-living, we've done micro-studios, So we've done a series of things of like, is this a problem? Is this housing crisis afflicting the working Bay Area, something that can be solved with technology, or is it a physical problem? In other words, we need to design a different type of housing. And the conclusion we came to after a decade of ideation is this is not something that you can solve with an app and that it required a new housing type. So if you look at housing as an ecosystem, you have student housing, you have multifamily, You have single family homes, you have senior living, which we'll all get to if coronavirus doesn't get to us. But there was not a housing type for people post-college, pre-marriage, right? And so it took us a decade of kind of like playing around with this, where we came to realize that the quality of our customer, who when we were able to get to the entry level price point, was actually a great person. And what I mean by that is like, there's a lot negative stigma to the word workforce. There's a negative stigma to the word entry level. There's a negative stigma to anything that doesn't sound like a luxury tech person or a luxury finance person. People want to lease to themselves, right? is the best understanding somebody has. And through a decade of working in the space, what we found was that people who make $65,000, they're teachers. They just don't make a lot of money. That doesn't mean they're going to be a bad customer. Right. And so we basically tried to scale that as a solution.
0: And that brings us to the moment that we're currently in right now, 2020, which has been pretty taxing on our economy and pretty taxing on urban areas in particular. And a lot of people getting a little bit skittish about the long term viability of cities and the future of the cities. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on on cities Riaz, are they they viable long-term with the current crisis that we find ourselves in?
1: So I think here, basically what's important to look at is cities have proven to be the most efficient organizing system for people for thousands of years, right? And who lives in cities prior to the crisis and who's going to live in them afterwards is the macro question. So if you look at the Bay Area, which is the area which Garrick and I have the most familiarity, and you look at it pre-crisis, and if you look at that compared to America as a whole, so what America looks like is you have a pretty even distribution of people from zero up to 70, and it looks like a little bit of a pyramid, right? So you, know, you have an even number of 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds going all the way up. In the Bay Area, it looks like a lollipop that got stuck in the middle of the stick. In other words, the majority of the people are between 22 and 42, right? In other words, people come here at the beginning of their career or after college to figure out technology. And so this is the epicenter of the innovation economy, right? And if you think about that for all cities, who is going to continue to want to live in cities and who's going to say, you know, we're out and we're not coming back. And I think the way to think about that is to segment by age first, what 20-year-old wants to go live in Boise, Idaho, to segment by profession. And so like, if you're a software engineer, maybe it's possible to go live in Boise, Idaho, if you're a salesperson, and you're trying to make connections or a marketing person or something where being people oriented is important, being in one place becomes important. And the third thing is, you know, what industry do you work in? And so, but by and large, I think going back to the root of it is like people are pack animals. And so when you're in your 20s, when you're a little kid, your pack is your parents. And as you get into high school, your pack turns into your friends and your parents. By your early 20s, the important people in your life, by and large, are your post-college friends and professional colleagues, right? And people are trying to date, try to learn a lot, right? It's the exposure decade where you're trying to take in as much as humanly possible, right? And so that is very difficult to accomplish working remotely over Zoom. So I think that for people that are in that early 20s to early 30s pre-kid period of life, the city, the office provides a social outlet that is not gonna be possible in a remote world, right? I think the idea that, you know, when people reach a certain stage of their career, where I'm not gonna say that since Jimmy, you and I are roughly the same age, that, you know, we've learned what we're gonna learn. No, we all continue to learn for our whole lives, right? But priorities shift when you have children and things like that, that once you've moved to that period of life, is it possible that people will move out of the city earlier once they have children? So historically, I would say people by and large would leave San Francisco or leave New York, you know when they needed to put their children into school because of the issues that that — and I'm not saying everybody did, but but statistically speaking, it's possible now that people would leave earlier than they would have otherwise. Over this one year period, I think what you've gotten is an acceleration of that movement. So, people that would have moved in 2023 moved in 2020. People moved in 2022 moved in 2020. My perspective is that the importance of the city as an organization of one's life up until the point you have your own family is critical. And that's why we've designed a housing solution focused on that group, which is okay, in whatever form a city comes back, no one is graduating from Notre Dame where you went or Lund School of Economics where I went or you know any of the Claremont colleges or any other place. I mean, like, you know where I want to go? I want to go to Boise, Idaho. Or I want to go to Salt Lake City. No, when you graduate from college, if you want to be in finance, you want to go to New York. If you want to be in entertainment, you want to go to LA. If you want to be in technology, you want to come to the Bay Area, right? So if you're going to try and be like super successful in your career, Whatever, you want to go to the epicenter of that industry for a period of your life. And those are represented by different cities in the country.
0: I agree. I mean, and you might say, to paraphrase Mark Twain, you might say that the reports of the death of the city have been greatly exaggerated. Uh, we are in a tough time and, and the cities haven't hit hard. And maybe you're right. Maybe people who would have moved out of the city in 2022 are just getting on with it a uh, year or two earlier. Um, and and I, I, I take your point there. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about the interesting moment that we're currently in and the fact that we are in a crisis, uh, our economy is is in a crisis. And, and uh, I want to talk to you about the key to surviving a crisis like the one that we currently find yourselves in. And, and why, in your view, Riaz, do you believe that workforce housing has been proven to be stable through this time of crisis?
1: Yeah. So, If you look at what happened when the tech bubble burst in 01 or the financial crisis in 08 or the crisis in 2020 triggered by the coronavirus, the luxury side of the market actually took a much harder hit than the workforce category or the entry level category. So if you think back to 2001, our workforce housing category rents fell by about 4% while the market fell by 18%, which means the luxury side of the market fell by more than 18%, Right? If you look at what happened today, and if you look at our portfolio as a proxy for entry-level housing, we've been able to maintain 98% collections over the course of the last seven months. We closed last month with, I think, 3% vacancy. It's been not the best year from a performance standpoint, but no one would ever argue that 98% collections is a disaster, right? And why is that? Well, it's the, the fact that basically the workforce housing category, number one, is more undersupplied than luxury urban housing, which has attracted a tremendous amount of capital over the course of the last decade, would be number one. Number two is that if you look at the customer base, whether it's New York, San Francisco, or LA, who was living in luxury housing and who could afford them, it's people working in the tech sector or the finance sector. Right. So, in other words, they had a high degree of financial flexibility. So, the minute their job said, Hey, you don't need to be here anymore, you can work from home. These people, you know, anecdotally had the financial flexibility to go and work from the Hamptons or Aspen, and their job all of a sudden gave them the flexibility to do so. If you look at that compared to somebody who makes 75 grand a year, who statistically speaking has about $50 a day of discretionary income, the people who are living in kind of outside the broadly entry-level housing, it's not that they didn't want to go to the Hamptons or take a vacation in Colorado or work from another place remotely for a period in time, is by and large, they didn't have the financial flexibility to do so, number one. And number two, their jobs wouldn't let them. So if you look at our portfolio and you look at the last 100 people that moved in, we have no professional concentration above 21%, as opposed to potentially 70% in luxury multifamily. So what that means is that like in, in let's say 20% were working in healthcare. Well, if you're a nurse at a hospital in the Bay Area, you can't go work from somewhere else. So basically it was a lack of basically professional, locational and financial flexibility that, and the diversity of our customer that made it a safer bet over the course of the last, what's now eight months. The other thing is in a crisis, you always have new entrance to the job market, even if it's at a slower level. And when things get tight, people wanna trade down. So in our most recent project, where we did a 30 unit micro studio project, which we were able to get stabilized in 30 days, 35% of the people moving into the building were doing so, not because they were trading up, but because they were trading down. So our strategy has always been within the most affordable category to be the most appealing option
0: right right makes sense makes sense uh again it's it's we're talking about supply and demand and that supply very limited particularly in our urban markets particularly in the san francisco bay area and demand will always be there or should always be there at least uh, barring anything completely unforeseen there's always people who need entry-level housing uh, whether they're coming into that market, or they're stepping down into that market from one direction or the other. Uh, we were running a little bit low on time here, Riaz, but wanted to, wanted to talk with you a little bit about specifically what you guys are doing with your strategy. Want to talk with you uh, about your development strategy and your Opportunity Zone strategy in particular. Uh, first, your, your development strategy. Wanted to learn a little bit more about that, and essentially, how do you create value with your development strategy, and how will the market value your assets, do you believe?
1: In terms of creating value, at the end of the day, real estate is a very simple ratio. It's the rent you can charge per square foot divided by the cost per square foot, which gives you your yield, or if you want to think about like a bank account, your interest rate on your investment, right? And so the lower the cost is, the higher the return. And I think as many people were tracing this luxury customer, basically amenities the amenitization of buildings, specifically parking, right, basically made the cost of building housing in California unaffordable. So the two things that we do differently, I would say, than most developers is we focus on a portfolio strategy, so we avoid mega projects, number one, and number two, we avoid the over-amenitization of projects. What we focus on is creating, you know, high density per square foot, having a predictable process. And avoiding unnecessary costs, and that all sounds obvious, like kind of like buy low, sell high, pretty simple. But it's basically a decade of experience on how to do that in a predictable and sustainable and scalable way. And in terms of how people will value our assets, or how the market will value our assets, if you look at this this industry that was developed out of 2008, which is these single-family homes, where basically a lot of single family homes after the financial crisis became rental assets, right? And over a, you know, five, 10 years, that the yield on those assets became very, very valuable, right? And the reason is, is that it proved very stable. So given the fact that our workforce housing asset class has proven very stable through the crisis, where luxury multifamily has taken a huge hit, I think there's a logic there's market logic that would dictate that over a period of time, whereas luxury family, multifamily typically would have traded at a premium to workforce, that high quality workforce housing could trade at an equal playing field with premium properties, right? Because they've performed better in uncertain times.
0: Right. Makes sense. Yeah. The stability of the asset creates a lot of value. I don't want to talk now about. Specifically, your Opportunity Zone strategy. Uh, You have the ABD Ozone Fund or Affordable by Design Ozone Fund. Tell us a little bit more about that. And specifically, Riaz, how do you approach Opportunity Zones differently than most other OZ platforms?
1: I think one clear distinction is that we're very focused on the underlying economics and what we were doing as a development company pre-OZ, post-OZ didn't change at all. So the two, the markets that we focus on are markets that we've worked in for almost 20 years that happen to have become opportunity zones. So we're location experts. The type of units that we're building in those neighborhoods are the same types of buildings that we thought were good investments in those areas prior to the opportunity zone. In other words, our strategy or our investment strategy Was didn't react to the Opportunity Zone, it just became another layer of investor benefits. So when anybody is looking at investing in something, they should look to what's the underlying economics, how does it improve when you add some leverage, and what the Opportunity Zone did is it added like the icing on the cake tax benefits. Where By investing with us in our Opportunity Zone compliant fund, you're getting a tax, what's almost a tax-free yield, right? And the majority of the funds out there are either looking at producing a very low yield or a very high risk yield. So, you know, whether it's a a hospitality asset, secondary market, or it's something like bridge where they're offering a very low return. So what we are is kind of like what's kind of like an emerging, an emerging developer, right? But we've been in business 20 years, we have a lot of experience in this space. And we've proven we can produce high returns. So if for those people that are investing for security you know to buy a house to pay for their kids education to fund their retirement we will produce a better risk adjusted return than our competitors whereas the majority of people in the opportunity zone space created funding platforms around the tax strategy we're a pure play workforce housing option
0: with a tax benefit as a cherry on top almost right that's right excellent so riaz i'm sure you'll have more offerings in 2021 and beyond, but this fund, the ABD Ozone Fund, is closing on December 31, 2020. Before we go today, could you tell our listeners what are the three compelling reasons why they should consider your Opportunity Zone Fund, and can you also let them know where they can go to learn more about you and the fund?
1: I think number one is that we're a multifamily pure play. So many Opportunity Zone funds market themselves as a multifamily fund, but have components of retail and office, even if it's a small percentage mixed into them. So this is a pure play multifamily fund. I'd say number two is that it's, because of releasing to who we're leasing to, in terms of being a workforce housing target, the stability of our revenues, therefore meeting our projections should be very realistic. I would say number three, is that this segment of the housing market in the country pre COVID was the most undersupplied part of the housing market anywhere in the country. And we're supplying directly into that very undersupplied market. So, to give you an idea, Oakland built 17 units of moderate income housing in the year 2019, right? At that rate, Oakland would meet its moderate income housing goals by the year 2500, right? Yes, 2500. So, for these three reasons, you know, investing in this fund should prove to be a very attractive place to allocate capital. And you can find out more about it and all of our work at Riaz Capital at www.riazcapital.com.
0: Riazcapital.com. Perfect. So for our listeners out there today, I will have show notes on the Opportunity Zones database website. You can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com podcast And there you'll find links to all of the resources that Riaz and I discussed on today's show. And please do head to RiazCapital.com to learn more about Riaz and Riaz Capital and their ABD Ozone Fund. Riaz, thanks for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Jimmy. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.